We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Hello and welcome to Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stengel. Hello. Hi. How's it going? It's going. This is our first recording post-live show. Did you make that compilation of my faces yet? No, because Instagram didn't save the video on my phone. Really? And I don't know how I can get it. Because, like, with how the laptop was set up, it's like, it was basically the chin cam. It was, like, looking Mm. up from underneath, so it didn't capture your faces. I'm going to have to see if there's some... Some way to do it. Some way I can MacGyver it to work. And So if someone knows how you can download a reel off of Instagram from your own account. Let me know. I'm sure there's some way to do it, and I'm just too dumb to, to know how to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I completely forgot that there was a camera on me the entire time. So the horrified faces that I made were genuine. They definitely <laughs> weren't, weren't hamming it up. Yeah. Yeah, peering back periodically to see how horrified your face was was pretty great. <laughs> Because normally I can see it in real time because I'm looking right, at you, but right. you were sitting next to me, so I couldn't see it. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Good times. Great times. All right. You ready? I'm ready. This week, we are going to be discussing Cordelia Botkin. Ooh, nice name. It is a pretty nice name. Cordelia. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you don't hear many Cordelias nowadays. No. You might now. But there's some people who are like, that is a cool name, depending on the story. Yeah. It's a cool name. She's not a cool person. Oh, great. Okay. Don't name your kids Cordelia. (laughs) (laughs) Don't bring it back. Keep it going. Information was pulled from the following sources. The 2022 Murder by Gaslight article by Robert Wilhelm. 2019 Medium article by Heather Monroe. 2016 San Francisco Gate article by Katie Dowd, six Find a Grave listings, historical crime detective website, Murderpedia, newspapers.com, Wikipedia, and Wikitree. Dang. And links to all of these articles will be included in the show notes. Got something you want to say? Shoot us an email over at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your story ideas see any gifts you send our way, or if you just want to say hello. We're pretty friendly. Speaking of friendly, if you'd like to have real-time conversations with us, consider joining our Discord over at the Cultivate Network. You can chat with us over at the Old Crimers Cubby, or catch up with any of the other great creators that are part of the Cultivate family of podcasts. Just click the link in our show notes, or over on our link tree to get started today. Yeah, I went kind of deep on this one. That's what he said. (laughs) Nice.
Cordelia Adelaide Brown was born in 1854 in Kansas City, Missouri, to parents Richard John Brown Jr. and Lamina Alderman. Hmm. Such great names. According to Find a Grave, she had four siblings. Frances Lovina Brown McClure, who was born in 1844, Margaret Jane Brown Fanker, who was born in 1847, and twin younger sisters Medora and Sarah Brown. Medora is a good name, too. Mm -hmm. At some point, her family relocated to California, and it is there that she met her future husband, Welcome Alpin Botkin. Dang. Just so many really intricate names. Mm-hmm. It's like they all wanted to be famous or something. Just by name alone. Just by name alone. Welcome was born in Clark, Ohio on April 9th, 1839, and the pair married on September 26th, 1872 in Kansas City, Missouri. At the time, Welcome was 33 and Cordelia was 18. You know, just a little gross. Yeah, not great. Just a few months later, they had a son, Beverly Brown Botkin, in December of 1872. Beverly Brown Botkin. Triple B. <laughs> Be cute. Welcome and Cordelia settled in Stockton, California, where Welcome was employed as a grain broker. Oh. Yeah. Sounds lucrative. It, it does. I don't know what that means, but it does sound yeah. lucrative. Over the course of their marriage, they became estranged, and everything changed when Cordelia met John Preston Dunning in 1895. John Preston Dunning was born on April 29, 1863, in Middletown, Delaware, to parents Daniel L. Dunning and Lydia A. Jones. Okay. He had one sibling, a sister named Mary Dunning Brady, who was born in 1877. At the time that Cordelia met John, he was married to the highly religious Mary Elizabeth Pennington Dunning. Another incra like crazy name. Mm-hmm. Like th this is just setting the stage for a musical. It just is. Just the names alone. They married on February 12th, 1891. Mary was born on January 14, 1863, to parents John Brown Pennington and Rebecca Rowan Pennington in Delaware. Her father was a congressman, and Mary had three older siblings. Henry, born in 1846, Ida Harriet, born in 1854, and Thomas M., born in 1858. Nice. I want to pretend the M is for, like, Maximilian or something crazy right, like something that. something elaborate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thomas Mortimer. Keeping with the theme. Thomas Mortimer Pennington. Mm -hmm. I like it. I do too. John was a known alcoholic and gambler. Great. <laughs> Shacking up with the super religious lady. Yeah. Of course. Who worked as an award-winning foreign war correspondent at the Associated Press's West Coast Bureau in San Francisco. Dang. Okay. He had been promoted to the superintendent following his overseas assignments in Samoa and Chile. Oh, wow. Look at him. Mm-hmm. John and Cordelia met by chance while he was biking in Golden Gate Park. His bike had broken down right near the bench where Cordelia was sitting. The pair struck mm -hmm. up a conversation as he fixed it, flirting shamelessly. 
and by the time his bike was fixed, John had secured a date with the smitten Cordelia. Ooh. This was scandalous on a number of levels. Right. Because they are both married. Mm-hmm. And she is unattended. Ooh. Broad daylight. Broad daylight. Super busy park. Just meeting up with this dude who is not her husband. Damn. Like in a space where anyone could see you. Mm-hmm. Not only that, but in 1895, so the year they met, Cordelia was 41 and John was 32. And he was completely infatuated with her. What? Did Car- Is this Cordelia gets her groove back? Like, wow. I don't know. This, despite the fact that he was married and had a baby daughter named Elizabeth. Perfect. Let's leave the small child. That'll work. Mm -hmm. Cordelia, although frumpy and almost 10 years John Sr. From, okay. Rude. She was described as frumpy. That's so rude. Like, Mm -hmm. she can pull people 10 years younger than her. You should lower your voice. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I know Cordelia isn't the nicest lady, but, like, rude. <laughs> yeah. She thought very highly of herself and bragged about posing for over 100 pictures, with her favorite pose being that of her hands behind her head with her elbows out. Oh, my God. Over 100 photos. That would have been a ton of photographs then. Yeah. Yeah, that was a this lot. This is no ye old Instagram model. Yeah. Frumpy Instagram model. And the only person that Cordelia loved more than herself was John. Aw, that's not great. She didn't love her own husband. Yeah. The pair had a torrid affair over the course of three years. Three years without being caught? Oh, it was like known that they were together. (gasps) Wow. Yeah. So when Mary, John's wife learned of her husband's dalliances a year into his affair with Cordelia in 1895. She and their young daughter moved back home to Dover, Delaware, to live with her parents. Yeah, because it would have been... She wouldn't have been able to divorce him for Mm -mm. religious reasons. Mm -mm. So now she was just the spouse that wasn't there. Yep. That happened a lot, didn't it? Yeah. Women would move away... And just hope that their spouse would, like, eventually die so that they could remarry. Yep. Or come to his senses or whatever and come back and they could just spin it however they wanted to. That's so awful. That poor woman. Mary didn't deserve it. Yeah. At the time of their affair, Cordelia was living at the Hotel Victoria, where she received regular remittances from her estranged husband, Welcome. So he basically was, like, sending her money every month. For so he was like, okay, cool. I don't want to be with you anyway, but like, I'll still finance. Yeah, go live your best life. Who is this woman? Cordelia uh, is this... I, I don't know. She just have like crazy pheromones? I don't understand. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like Sex Leopard from what, Ron Burgundy? Sex Panther? <laughs> sex Panther. <laughs> 40% of the time it works every time. <laughs> she just bathed herself. For a while, life seemed to be idyllic for the pair. 
at least until John was caught embezzling over $4,000, or around $134,000 today, to pay off his gambling debts. Oh, snap. He liked to bet on the ponies. Yeah, and he always picked the wrong one, apparently. (laughs) He was not good at it. He was never correct. (laughs) After this, he was also let go by newspapers he had been writing for in Salt Lake City, as well as San Francisco. I forgot he was a journalist. Could you imagine the gossip columns writing about one of their own? Yeah. They would have loved that. Yeah. And it was after this that he ended up moving into the Hotel Victoria with Cordelia. Oh my god. Yeah, because he probably had nowhere to go because he's broke. Yeah, because I doubt he still had the house where he and his wife were living. Right. He probably ended up selling that for... Definitely not paying any sort of child support. Mm -mm. Cool dude. Really stand-up guy. Yeah. He's great. On March 8th, 1898, John was able to resume his journalism work when he was called away to cover the Spanish-American War in Puerto Rico and Cuba as the lead reporter for the Associated Press. Really? Still? He was good at his job when he wasn't embezzling money. So, yeah, but you would think like the Associated Press, would they want to be associated with all of his like personal shames? I don't think they were aware of all of his personal shames. Oh, that's fair. Prior to him leaving, he told Cordelia that they were through. When he returned from covering the war, it wouldn't be to San Francisco. It would be to Dover so he could reunite with Mary and their child. Interesting turn of events. Didn't see that one coming. Over the course of their estrangement, Mary had continued to send John love letters on an almost daily basis, and he had done the same. So he remembered why they were in love. Yeah, like I guess he would send her letters that basically were just kind of like diary entries of like whatever he did that day, sans, you know, affair stuff. Cordelia was also there <laughs> like the last sentence but he just would send things like yeah I went for a walk in the park and blah 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 like it was just weird, weird. yeah just weird okay I guess absence does make the heart grow fonder I guess this news devastated Cordelia who begged okay. him to reconsider but he remained firm in his conviction that they were through that's not great for someone who's a narcissist Right. So Cordelia saw John off at the train station in Oakland and promptly lost her mind. Great. Sounds like it. Sounds like one of those. Yeah. That you would see. So, being of sound body and mind, of Cordelia began to send threatening letters to Mary in Dover anonymously. Great. Warning her against reuniting and reconciling with her husband upon his return. I'm sure she had no idea who those letters could possibly be from. One such letter read in part, quote, Your husband is constantly with this interesting and pretty woman, who, by the way, is an English woman. She is now divorcing from her husband, all owing to the marked intimacy with Mr. Dunning, end quote. She really, she really did think she was all that and a bag of chips. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> This really interesting and, like, super pretty woman. 
I don't know who she is, but she's like amazing. Mm-hmm. She sleeps with your husband. Yeah. And he's so good that she's leaving her husband for your husband. Yeah, like, cool story. I just wanted you to know. Yeah. Signed, Concerned Citizen. Right. Sisters. <laughs> it, it was Concerned Citizen because she started to write her name. <laughs> Corn Citizen. <laughs> the summer of 1898, Cordelia traveled to the Owl Drugstore, where she purchased two ounces of powdered arsenic. Great. This is going to end well. Friends of Cordelia's became concerned about her during this time as she began to behave in a melancholic, almost manic way. Yeah, that sounds, that all sounds right. I'm surprised she has friends. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, honestly. (laughs) On July 27th, Cordelia had a conversation with Mrs. Almira Ruoff, in which Cordelia asked her the effects of different poisons on the body. This is a play. A thousand percent. She was also curious to know if it was necessary to sign your name when sending a registered package through the post office. The old Google was, what's her name, Aurelia? Almira. Almira. Ask Almira. (laughs) Ask Almira. (laughs) She before asked Jeeves, too. She had her own, like, question and answer column in the paper. She's got her little window that you can walk up to. The doctor is in. Ask Elmira. Elmira, what is poison? <laughs> Webster's Dictionary defines poison as... <laughs> she goes and gets her dictionary. <laughs> On July 31st, Cordelia visited the Market Street Candy Store in San Francisco, run by George Haas, where she purchased a box of chocolates from clerk Emma Herbert. She asked that they be packed in a plain box with enough room left over for a present. Mm -hmm. Following this, Cordelia went to the store known as the City of Paris that specialized in novelties, where she purchased a handkerchief. She's going to soak all of that in arsenic, isn't she? (laughs) She's going to just arsenic the shit out of everything in there. (laughs) God damn it. After returning home, Cordelia prepared the box for delivery. It was fancy, yet lacked any of the branding that would connect it to the Market Street candy store, allowing it to be sent anonymously. Great. Cordelia replaced the chocolate bonbons with ones she had prepared herself. Ones laced with lethal doses of arsenic. Yep. And dog poop. And... (laughs) (laughs) Dirt. She then placed the handkerchief, which had the name of the shop, the city of Paris, embroidered in the bottom corner, atop the box of chocolates, along with a letter that read, quote, With love to yourself and baby, Mrs. C., end quote. That will come into effect later. Yeah, that was dumb. But she's not Mrs. C. I'll ex- yeah. You'll see later. Okay. The completed package didn't list a return address and was delivered by Cordelia herself to the Ferry Station Post Office in San Francisco on August 4, 1898, where it was shipped off to Mrs. John P. Dunning. The box arrived at the Dover Post Office five days later on August 9th and was retrieved by Mary's young nephew, Henry, who they had sent to pick up the mail. 
All of that chocolate would be so melted and nasty. The handkerchief would just be gross. (laughs) (laughs) Five days of travel in the middle of summer. Upon returning home, Henry handed the package to Mary. Inside was an elegant white box wrapped with a pink satin ribbon. The box had bonbons written on the top in a fancy gold script. And inside were rows of chocolate creams, oblong bonbons, and chocolate drops. Mary proceeded to share the chocolates with her sister, Ida Dean, with Mary eating three and her sister eating two. They also shared them with Ida's daughter, Leola, their nephew, Henry, and a few of their friends who had come over for a dinner party, Miss Millington and Miss Bateman. Within hours, everyone who ate the chocolates became violently ill with severe stomach pain and intense bouts of vomiting. Fearing food poisoning, a doctor was sent for, but none of the usual remedies had any effect. Yeah, because they were being murdered. By the morning of August 11th, Ida Dean was dead, and Mary Elizabeth Dunning soon after, on August 12th. Mary was 35, and Ida was 44 at the time of their deaths. The August 13, 1898 edition of the Daily Republican noted the passings as follows. Quote, Mrs. Dunning opened the box and handed it to Mrs. Dean, Miss Dean, Miss Bateman, Miss Millington, and Harry Pennington. The excellent quality of the candy was commented by one of the party. Mrs. Mm-hmm. Dean was seized with a nauseous feeling shortly after retiring, and she died on Thursday afternoon. Mrs. Dunning at the same time was seriously affected, and her condition remained the same until yesterday afternoon when she improved, but died last night. Harry Pennington is in a serious condition, although the physician is of the opinion that his life will be saved. Leola Dean, Miss Josephine Bateman, and Miss Ethel Millington, who were affected by eating the candy, are on the road to recovery. End quote. That's insane. I wonder if they just had one. Yeah they, of three. Uh, yeah, they think that the bonbons were the only things that were replaced and that the other chocolates had just been like sprinkled mm. with arsenic. Okay, so they might not have gotten like a full dose, a full yeah. full dose. Yeah. Just enough to really clean out your system. Yep. Great. I- I'm really relieved that the child didn't get it. Following his daughter's violent and untimely deaths, Mary's father, Congressman Pennington, launched an investigation into their poisoning. She messed with the wrong family. (laughs) The Secret Service was even involved. Yeah, because how would they know that it wasn't an attack on him? Mm -hmm. And Delaware's governor offered a $2,000 or $73,000 today reward for the arrest and conviction of the guilty party. Some pretty intense motivation. But yeah, she lived with a congressman. Mm-hmm. So of course they're going to think it was a attack. Mm-hmm. Assassination attempt. The August 16th, 1898 edition of the Morning News included information about the investigation into the poisoning. Quote, first of all, it was necessary that an investigation by the proper authorities should be commenced. That was done this morning when Coroner Walls began his investigation. Several samples of the candy will be tested. The Honorable George V. Massey sent a letter to ex-Congressman Pennington 
asking for a sample of the candy, and he will have it analyzed by the chemists of the Pennsylvania Railroad Company at Altoona, where one of the finest laboratories in the world is located. I bet, because that would have been, like, USPS level at that point. Mm -hmm. Because everything would be via train. Yep. Essentially. Another piece of candy will be analyzed by the chemist employed by the Associated Press, by whom Mr. Dunning is now employed, while Mr. Pennington will send a specimen to Dr. Theodore R. Wolf, state chemist at Newark. When these tests are made, the result will be announced to the coroner's jury, end quote. So I think it's really telling that they sent samples to three different people to test. Yeah. So then, like the results couldn't be tampered with. Right. Well, this is, I mean, again, if you sent this to a congressman's house, Mm -hmm. former or not, it's going to be held to the highest degree because Mm -hmm. you tried to kill a public figure, whether Mm -hmm. you were going after his daughter or not, because you're an ignorant piece of shit. Yep. Yep. I bet she didn't know that, did she? I don't think she knew that. Yeah. She should have asked Elmira. Yeah. <laughs> Elmira, is it a good idea to send this to an ex-congressman's daughter? <laughs> is Mary related to anyone famous? That I should be wary of? <laughs> Given that the package had come from San Francisco, the police there started their own investigation into the case as well. Ida's husband, Joshua Dean, believed that the poison had been added to the package after it had arrived in Dover, while Mary and Mm. Ida's father believed it more likely that it had been tampered with prior to it being shipped. Yeah, I can see why they would look at both options, though. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, you really wouldn't know Yeah. if... I bet it was pretty easy to tamper with the package then. Yep. I mean, it still kind of is now, as long as you have the right tape and stuff. Right away, Congressman Pennington noted that the handwriting on the package that had contained the chocolates matched several of the anonymous letters that Mary had been receiving. Yeah, she's not smart. I hope it won't come as any surprise that the first person law enforcement reached out to for questioning was her estranged husband, John. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Once John received word in Puerto Rico that his wife had died quite suddenly, he immediately made his way back to Dover aboard a ship. Upon his return, he was set upon by reporters curious to know who had poisoned his wife. He admitted that while he had been in San Francisco, he had affairs with three different women. Not just Cordelia. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh my god, Cordelia would be fuming. Mrs. Louise Seeley, Mrs. Clara Abragast, and Mrs. Cordelia Botkin. This has to be a play. These names. Oh my god. When he was shown the package and the letters that Mary had received, he knew immediately that Cordelia was responsible. What a horrible discovery. Like when you're trying to do right by your family finally after being a piece of shit for so long. Mm-hmm. For three years, yeah. And you, you're the reason she's dead. Mm-hmm. In the August 22nd, 1898 edition of the Evening Mail, they describe Mrs. Botkin as follows. Quote, Mrs. Botkin is a clever woman. 
She is educated and polished in manner, and an interesting conversationalist, always ready with bright repartee and French phrases. She is a woman of medium stature, plump, rather prepossessing, with fine gray eyes and dark waving hair. She is 42 years of age, but would pass for several years younger. That she has a fondness for the drama and mayhap at a time in her life had aspirations for the stage suggests itself in marked style. So given is she to be dramatical, yes, even tragical, in discussing the tragedy and the manner in which she has been associated with it, end quote. Yeah, I mean, that all makes sense. It also makes sense as to why she was so alluring to him. Like, from going and being like, oh, she's like old and frumpy, to actually know she's super engaging and really enticing, and although she seems plain, she's not. Yeah. Like, if he was already with two other women and his wife, she would have had to have something to mm-hmm. draw him in because that would have kept somebody very busy. Three mm-hmm. ladies, four ladies. Yep. It's a lot of dalliances. Yeah. <laughs> Chemist Dr. Wood examined the remaining chocolates and confirmed that they had been laced with arsenic. It was once this news was presented to him that John recalled that during their time together, he happened to mention to Cordelia that Mary was a rabid fan of chocolate and that she had a friend in San Francisco named Mrs. Corbelly or Mrs. C. Which is why she put Mrs. C so that she would trust it. Yeah, because she had no reason to suspect that anyone would send her. And you wouldn't look at the handwriting, too, at the time. Uh, But honestly, I I mean, I feel like if you were being actively threatened and you were a congressman's daughter, would you pay attention to something like the handwriting or would you just like trust? Because how like you wouldn't pay the expense to call Mrs. C, right? Yeah. Because that that would have been really extravagant Yeah. of an expense. But it's just sad that there wasn't like an extra step to try to prevent it. Yeah. The the detective working the case, B.J. McVeigh, gathered the evidence, along with love letters from John that he had received from Cordelia, and traveled to San Francisco. Once there, he employed the help of Theodore Kitka, an expert handwriting analyst, who was able to confirm John's suspicions that Cordelia had, in fact, not only been the culprit behind the anonymous letters— but had sent the poisoned chocolates to his late wife. That's devastating. Once it became clear who their suspect was, Isaiah Lees, the San Francisco chief of police, took over the investigation. Turns out it wasn't hard to track Cordelia down. She was in Stockton, California, visiting her estranged husband, Welcome, and their son, Beverly. Oh, convenient. When she was shown the arrest warrant, Cordelia was quoted as saying, quote, The chagrin is past. The horror is over. I have suffered all the humiliation. I am ready. End quote. Oh, God, I hate her so much. But not before she packed a trunk of clothes for jail, which was so heavy that it mm. required two deputies to carry it, sure. while she was escorted from her home on the arm of Detective Edward Gibson. Great. Yeah, don't handcuff her or anything they they did handcuffs then they didn't handcuff ladies if they didn't have to 
While Cordelia was being arrested, the police were busy gathering further evidence. Clerks from Owl Drug Store, Market Street Candy Store, and the City of Paris Novelty Shop all recognized Cordelia straight away. Right. I mean, how could you not? All those poses. They had hun- literally hundreds insane. of photographs to choose from. I bet, I bet she handed them out that Christmas. This is me. From your loving patron, Cordelia. I signed it for you. Frank Gray, a, du- a druggist at the Owl Drugstore, identified Cordelia as having purchased two ounces of arsenic. When asked what she needed it for, she replied that it was for bleaching a straw hat, even though Frank told her that they sold different products that would be more effective. Right. That sounds like a stupid answer. She should have asked Almira what arsenic was for before she did. I have all the rats. (laughs) (laughs) So many rats. There's so many rats in this hotel. Miss Sylvia Henney and Miss Kitty Dittmer from Market Street Candy positively identified her, with Miss Henny even going so far as to positively identify the box as being identical to the one that she sold Cordelia back on July 31st. You go, girl. Mrs. Grace Harris from the City of Paris store remembered Cordelia due to her striking resemblance to her late mother. Ooh. I know. That's trauma. Yeah. <laughs> did, did you also know that your mother was a murderer? Was she a murderer, too? <laughs> Great. She also loved handkerchiefs. The ferry station postal clerk, a man named John Dunnigan, remembered the box that was sent to Mrs. John Dunning as her name was so similar to his own. Yeah. Isn't that funny how we remember little things like that? Mm -hmm. And how it would come to play later on? Yep. Like, oh yeah, I remember that name because it's kind of like mine. She's dead? (laughs) That sucks. Cordelia's crime was unique and unprecedented, as it was the first known case of murder by mail in American history. Really? Mm-hmm. Damn. It also involved two jurisdictions, Delaware and California, and it was only after much debate via attorneys in both states that a Supreme Court decision was finally reached by Superior Court Judges Cook, Borden, Wallace, Trout, and Sewell on October 23rd, to try Cordelia in San Francisco. Mm. Their main defense was she couldn't be tried in Delaware because she had never physically set foot in Delaware. Was Delaware harsher with her? I don't think so. I think that was the sticking point, is that... They wanted to make sure that wherever she was persecuted, she was persecuted to the fullest extent. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's what I would think, too. Like, between the two uh, jurisdictions, which one is the harshest? And it was a matter of, it would be more circumstantial if she was tried in Delaware versus in California. Where they had all these witnesses. Yes. Yes. Makes sense. Evidence was provided on October 28th to the grand jury, at which time she was indicted. In the October 28th edition of the San Francisco Call, Shocking news came out regarding the package. Quote, The sending of obscene matter through the mails is a punishable offense, and many convictions have been secured under this charge. Mm -hmm. The sending of poison through the mails is simply a misdemeanor. In consultation with the Attorney General of the Post Office Department, 
fails to reveal a single instance where punishment was meted out to those guilty of this offense, end quote. Crazy. That's crazy to think about. Mm-hmm. And I bet once that came out, people were furious. Because I read that there were two in the article that that was included in. There were two other instances of poison being sent via mail, but they hadn't resulted in somebody dying. So it was like... Oh, so they couldn't charge them. Yep. Because it was attempted murder or attempted maiming or whatever, bodily harm. Yeah. Because they couldn't prove that even though they sent poison, that it was intended to actually kill the person it was being sent to. God, that's so shitty. Right? (laughs) No, I just wanted to send it to him as like a, this could kill you if I wanted it to. Like, no. No, they really just wanted you to die. (laughs) I just wanted you to know how much arsenic I owned. I wonder. And the the easiest way to do that was to send it to you. Could you imagine if one of them was like just the powder? And then when they opened the package, it just went... (laughs) Yeah. Well, think about anthrax. I mean, like, you know what I mean? God, could you imagine if these crazy people had access to that? Oh, God. At that time? (laughs) I can't. Cordelia's trial was presided over by Judge Carol Cook and began on December 9th, 1898. A female? No. Oh, it's a male? <laughs> it's a man. Okay. Yeah. I haven't heard a lot of Carols as, as men, but that makes sense too. Yeah. It's spelled Carol kind of like Carol, Iowa, with two R's and two L's. Oh, uh, okay. I was like, this is crazy. <laughs> it keeps, keeps getting crazy. crazier. A female judge. <laughs> Oh my god the hell you say <laughs> no it was just like this curmudgeon gentleman cordelia seemed carefree during the first few days of her trial smiling during questioning at least until december 12th it was on that day that the prosecution shared that two men employed by hotel victoria porter wp rosello and clerk W.W. Barnes had found paper, string, and the seal of the candy box in her apartment, room 26. I bet she would have been like, you went through my stuff? (laughs) How dare you go through a lady's trash? (laughs) At that point, it became quite clear how Cordelia had managed to doctor the chocolates before sealing the box back up prior to shipping it to Delaware. Yep. It makes sense that they would have been able to do whatever they wanted because it's not her home. It's a hotel. Yep. So that's another big miss on her part. Yep. On December 30th, 1898, the jury spent four hours deliberating before Mm -hmm. Judge Cook found Cordelia guilty of two counts of first-degree murder. On February 4th, 1899... She was given a life sentence and sent to the women's ward at San Quentin. Ooh. Following her incarceration at San Quentin, an appeal was sent through. The process took four years, and the U.S. Supreme Court granted her a new trial. What? There was something that happened during those four years where a judge had done something like to coerce the jury 
And so her lawyers kind of jumped on that and were like, oh, this kind of thing was similar to what happened to Cordelia. So then they were able to, like, twist it to be like, well, she needs a new trial, too. Awful. So in March of 1904, Cordelia was tried again, this time before District Attorney Louis Francis Byington, but once again found guilty on August 2nd. It was noted that nine members of the jury favored having her hanged, nice. but all ultimately agreed to her serving a life sentence. While awaiting a decision from the Supreme Court, Cordelia was held at the Branch County Jail. It was around the time of her second trial that Judge Cook's wife passed away, and he would often visit her grave. There's, there's, a, there's a point to this. I hate this. On a random Sunday, as he was on his way to visit his wife's final resting place, I'm sure you can imagine his astonishment when he happened to see Cordelia riding in a streetcar in San Francisco, completely unaccompanied by guards. Fun fact, Cordelia had been trading sexual favors so she could enjoy a bit of freedom in the city. I'm not surprised. No. In the slightest. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know what I would do if I was him. I really don't. Yeah. On March 9th, Welcome sued Cordelia for divorce, citing that she had been convicted of a felony and he no longer wished to be married to her. A few months later, he passed away on May 2nd, 1904, from a heart condition at the age of 65. Just a year after that, Cordelia's son, Beverly, passed away on May 3rd, 1905, in Byron, Contra Costa County, California. His death was noted in the May 5th, 1905 edition of the Stanislaus County Weekly News, as follows. Quote, Beverly Botkin, a former resident of Modesto, died Sunday at Byron Springs. He was the only son of Mrs. Cordelia Botkin, the convicted murderess of Mrs. Dunning of Delaware. Mrs. Botkin is now in the San Francisco County Jail awaiting sentence, but was allowed by the court to attend her son's funeral last Wednesday. Her trial was one of the most sensational ever in the Pacific Coast Court. Beverly Botkin came to Modesto five years ago and operated a bucket shop in connection with one in Stockton, which was in charge of his father, Welcome Botkin. Mm-hmm. He remained here until the arrest of his mother when he and his father moved to San Francisco, where the latter died just a year ago. Beverly Botkin was 35 years of age and a native of Missouri. While here, he enjoyed a rather unsavory reputation and was known as a hard drinker, end quote. What a terribly sad obituary that, like, wasn't even about him. Yeah. Are they assuming he killed himself by drinking or something? Like, they didn't... I don't know. Because they didn't say how he died. Yeah. Normally, if it's, like, a medical reason, they call it out. But wouldn't you drink, too, if your mom was so insane? Well, I think you might be on the right track based off what I'm going to share with you next. Okay. What wasn't noted in his death notice was that his wife, Zeta Hope Ewell Botkin, had passed away a few months prior on February 16th, 1905, at the age of 26. 
the pair had a daughter, Catherine Botkin, who was stillborn. Yeah, so he had a horrible, horrible life the past few years. I couldn't find much information on either, but based on how quickly Zeta passed away after her daughter, I think it's safe to assume that it had something to do with complications from Catherine's birth. Zeta had been born on May 17, 1878, and I have no idea when she and Beverly got married. That's just so sad. Like, he was abandoned by his mom, mm-hmm. tried to live well with his dad. His mom is doing crazy stuff, so then they have to move again. He has this wife. They're about to have a baby. The baby dies. The wife dies. His dad dies. His mom's in jail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see why he would drink. Yeah. Cordelia was transferred to San Quentin State Prison once again in May of 1906, following the Great San Francisco Earthquake, when the jail she had been at became overcrowded. About a year later, John Preston Dunning died on April 17, 1907, in Philadelphia, penniless after suffering a cerebral hematoma. He was almost 44 years old at the time of his death. And I guess it's super young too. Subdermal hematomas, people nowadays barely survive those. So I can't imagine mm-hmm. they'd even know what to do yeah. at the time. In some of the articles they said he died from drinking. Like he he became an even worse alcoholic following the death of his wife. Yeah. You drink alcohol, you fall. You have yeah. a brain bleed. There you go. Yep. After losing so many of the people that she loved in such rapid succession, Cordelia's mental health began to suffer. Was it even there to start? right. (laughs) When she learned of John's death, her depression worsened. In February of 1910, she petitioned for parole due to her ill health, but was Mm -hmm. denied. On March 7th, 1910, Cordelia died in prison from, quote, softening of the brain due to melancholy, end quote, at the age of 56. That's a weird way to die. Yeah. She is buried alone in Oak Mound Cemetery. Softening of the brain. Did they look at her brain? Like, I really want to know. I, they must have done some sort of autopsy on her because she died in yeah. prison. Softening of the brain. Yeah. Well, that was horrible. It'd be a really good play. <laughs> it would be. I think a, a movie was made about it. Yeah, I can I can see why. Like, that's insane. Yeah. The whole thing. Top to bottom. And it was a true story. Yep. Just her on the fucking streetcar in San Francisco. Yeah, I gave the guard a blowjob. So now I'm just out on the town. <laughs> like, what the fuck? Just doing some light shopping. Some window shopping. I can't with the story. Cordelia, why? If you're interested in ad-free content, consider supporting us with a one-time donation either over on Buy Me A Coffee or our Venmo page, both of which are in our link tree and in the show notes. If you'd like early ad-free content, not to mention some bonus material, become a member of our Patreon today for as low as a dollar a month. We have to talk about our show. Okay. Who are we? What do we do? Ha! I am Martha Madrigal. And I'm Charles Tyson Jr. We are the hosts of 
Full Circle, the, the podcast. podcast. You are a beautiful white trans woman. I will take that. <laughs> of a certain age. And you are a gorgeous black cis pan man who has shared my life for 10 years. And we're engaged. I put a ring on it. Yeah, you did put a ring on it. It's a pretty ring, too. <laughs> now yeah. we have a podcast. Yeah, there's not much we don't talk about here. It's true. We talk about LGBTQ issues, headlines of the day. We talk about fun things, too, like movies and music and television and pop culture. Mm-hmm. And we talk about what it is to be black in America and what it is to be trans in America and how those things intersect and collide. And, and child, it gets interesting. And you can check us out every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. Because once again, we're Charles Tyson Jr. and Martha Madrigal, and this is Full Circle, the The podcast. podcast. Are we done now? I think so. Okay. This week's podcast plug is the Full Circle podcast. Writers, activists, and creatives Charles Tyson Jr. and Martha Madrigal come to you each week with their unique brand of wit and humor as they discuss current headlines affecting the LGBTQ plus community, pop culture, and navigating life as a black queer man and a white trans femme, recently engaged. After 10 years of friendship and another 10 years as a couple, these former tavern owners invite you into their home at East Barbary Lane each week to visit with them, their needy Pomeranian, and two eternally feuding cats. They both were on a fairly recent episode of Can You Crack the Cramp Word? And we will have a link to their show in the show notes. Nice. And this week's listener question comes from our friend Carrie Ann, and she would like to know, would you rather face a chainsaw-wielding serial killer or a terrifying monster mutant? Monster mutant. Because you'd hope, if it was aggressive, that it would kill you quickly. Mm-hmm. But if it's just misunderstood and wants affection... It could be your best new freak puppy. This is Whereas true. if you did the serial killer with the chainsaw, you don't know if your death is swift. You don't know if he's actually going to kill you or just maim you. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm more afraid of humans than a freak monster thing. Yeah, this is true. I mean, it could be a fresh situation. Have you watched that movie yet? No. You should. You should watch it. I don't like Long Pig. You shouldn't watch it. I don't want to. Okay, fine. I've heard about it. I like the actors in it. I I can't. Okay, that's fair. There's too much cannibalism in the cannibalism movie. (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) I would also go with the monster mutant, just because Mm -hmm. I would hope it would be something where... Like you said, death would come swiftly mm-hmm. if death is coming. Or maybe you would be better able to distract them to run away. Or you get like a cool new friend in the woods that you get to like feed chickens and stuff. Or like fish heads too. Yeah. You could just be like a your your friend in the cave down the road. Your friendly cave out. bound. Mutant monster. Mutant monster. He just, he just wants head scratches. It's like a real mm-hmm. life version of my favorite monster. You so. know, I'm going to pull the white lady card. We do this with pit bulls. We can do it with mutant monsters. Pit 
Pitbulls are amazing dogs. We can, we can take them. I just love that that constant joke of like behind every strong white lady is like several rehabilitated pit bulls <laughs> that everyone else was terrified of. Fair. I love that trope. Fair. And it's so true on so many different levels. But mm-hmm. yeah, I'm going to go with that. I'm going to pull my white lady card and say that I can make it a fun, creepy puppy. I second that. Yeah. I'll hop on your crazy white lady train. Yep. Choo choo. All aboard. <laughs> All right. What's something good you'd like to share? The strawberry. So my fiance got me a strawberry plant and a matured beefsteak tomato plant. Mm-hmm. And the beefsteak tomato plant, despite being two years matured, is being a little jerk and is not flowering. I don't know if we'll get any this year. He also like loves to fall over, which is so rude. Despite my many attempts to like make him happy, he's not. The strawberry plant is flowering and we just ate one of one of the first strawberries and it was really delicious. And we have a raspberry plant that just started to flower. So we might actually have raspberries this year too. So nice. Just some minor urban garden gardening. I've got rosemary oregano and lavender too and they're all doing super well so it's been really fun to watch them grow and have have it in a spot where they could grow because where I lived before the sunlight was just not conducive to anything living (laughs) so us included we were sad (laughs) from the lack of sun so that's fair it's been really nice Having having some garden buds. What about you? So the Minnesota One Wheel Group does, they call it a stoke float each year around this time in Stillwater. Oh, yeah. So we went to that this weekend. We had gone last weekend to just kind of like try out the loop to kind of see how it looked because there had been, well, because there had been a lot of flooding in Stillwater. So we wanted to see like, if there were areas that were washed out that we weren't allowed to go. And last weekend we went and there's this section where you can like get on the bridge that goes back over the river. Mm -hmm. Not the lift bridge, a different bridge. And there's like a lip that I wasn't able to get over. So I wiped out last weekend and landed on my right butt cheek and it hurt really bad. And I like hyperextended my shoulder and I was like, that can't happen twice. Oh my God, it totally happened twice. And it totally happened twice because oh, yesterday no. I was fine on the loop. Thomas was ready to record like a victory video of me going over the the bump that I fell on. And I was like, nope. And I like, I like stopped. <laughs> I stopped, picked it up and carried it over the, the little <laughs> crack and then got back on and went. I was like, nope. Fool me once. And I was like, I'm not doing that. Sorry. That's fair. And it wasn't until we were done with the loop and we were heading back to the car to pick up my oldest. We'd go grab lunch that I like wiped out and landed on my other butt cheek. So now both of my butt cheeks are bruised, but it was good to go outside and enjoy the nice weather and (laughs) ride around. My body hurts, but the sun is out. So (laughs) it was beautiful weather. It was. 
you at know. Least the weather was nice. That's all we can say here in Minnesota. At it least is. the weather was nice. Like <laughs> the worst thing happened, but you know, it was gorgeous out. There was a breeze. And there was no humidity. And butt bruises heal. So I do, I do have do. a lot of cushion, so I'm fine. <laughs> Amazing. On that note, let's shut her down. Let's shut it down. (laughs) Looking for more content? You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. If you'd like to see pictures from this week's episode, not to mention bonus content and funny memes, make sure to follow us on Twitter at yieldcrimepod and on Facebook and Instagram at yieldcrimepodcast. On TikTok? Of course you are. Follow us at yieldcrimepodcast. A great way to support the show if you can't do so financially is to leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Good Pods, or Podcast Addict. You can also leave comments on Spotify. This week's isn't really a review, but it is a really nice note that we got from a new listener through our website. Oh, okay. And it says... Hi ladies, new listener here. I stumbled upon your podcast when looking for info on Elizabeth Bud Graham. She was a witch we covered Mm -hmm. for the back. Loved your episode so much, I went back to episode one and now I'm hooked. I'm literally crying here at work laughing so hard at all the uterus issues sending people to the asylum. Oh my god, there were so many. (laughs) There were so many. Just had to tell you. Now I'm taking my uterus back to work. Have a great day and can't wait to see what other stories you cover. It's either Marin or Marin. Either of those. Thank you for being a new listener and we hope you continue to listen. If you want a playlist of all our episodes on YouTube, click the link in our show notes or in our link tree and subscribe today for not only a list of our full catalog, but a separate list as well, just of our Can You Crack the Cramp Word segments. And on that note, as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale. As old as crime. <laughs>